Would you turn with me this morning to John 14? For some weeks now, we've been on the subject, I believe, at the direction of the Lord, concerning the glory of God. The glory of God. And in John 14 and 21, 14, 21, in the Amplified, says, the person who has my commands and keeps them is the one who really loves me. And whoever really loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and will show or reveal or manifest myself to him. The Amplified says, I'll let myself be clearly seen by him and make myself real to him. Now, what would be much stronger on the heart and desire of any real child of God than that God would be more real to them and that you would know more of God and he would be manifest to you? Well, he told us that he would do it if. There's a qualifier. So in other words, if you do it, he does. If you don't, you shouldn't expect that he's going to reveal himself to you. What's the qualifier? If we obey him, if we do what he tells us to do, then he's going to show up. And you know, so many times people get off trying to get God to show up. We're going to fast for 40 days. Well, we're going to pray it for 90 days. Well, we're going to give up this. We're going to give up that. Are we going to try to do this? Well, praying's good. Fasting is good. But watch out about trying to move God. You're not going to talk him into something that's not his will. You're not going to convince him or persuade him to do something he didn't want to do. Manifesting himself to us was his idea. Before you were ever born. Right? This was in the book. And he didn't tell us that we had to climb the highest mountain or go to the depth of the sea. What did he say? Do what I tell you to do. And then what? I'll show up. Isn't that simple? How many believe that? Do what I tell you to do. We talked about this, you know, in so many areas of life. Sure, in our services. But we're not in service all the time. Right? Most of our week is not in the church service. How many believe God's supposed to show up in your life at the house? He's supposed to show up in your life at the job. And that is really the big thing that's going to lead ungodly people and people who don't know God to God is when they see the goodness of God in your life. Not just you preaching now and talking, but they see the manifestation of the goodness of God in your life. The Bible said it leads them to repent, to turn and to come to God. So how, how can we get God to show up in our life? Obey. Do what he said. Do what he says in his word. Do what he says by his spirit. And he's already given us his word. I will show up. I will manifest myself to you. I'll make myself real and let myself be clearly seen and show myself to you. That's exciting. How many are going to obey God now? What do we say? Are you going to obey God? Let's be obeyers of God. And we'll see the glory. Now back up to the 11th. Chapter of John. Did you know that God is not in complication? 
When things are complicated and confusing, that's because of darkness, because of lack of light. I know a friend of mine was squadron commander on the SR-71. He and his crew were the first ones to fly it operationally. Now, the SR-71 is a plane that flies at, what, 70,000 feet, 2,200 miles an hour. Still one of the fastest things. Built back in the 60s, still to this day one of the fastest things on the planet. And this thing was so cutting edge when it came out. I mean, still to this day, in 2004, it hadn't been surpassed in many ways. And when they tried to teach them, he said the engineers came. And they pulled out all their schematics and all their engineering diagrams. And he said they were there for a week or two. Of course, you understand, these guys are no dummies to make it to this level of the program. And they're all scratching their heads. After two weeks, they're like, did you understand that? (laughs) Did you know how that works? And so the program director, he saw that. And so they reached back and got from, I guess it was Lockheed Skunk Works, some of the original designers. And brought a couple of those guys out. And he said in three days they had it. Just like that. Why? Because these other guys are reading out of a book. Right? And these guys are the ones who built the thing. They designed it. They knew what they're talking about. And as they explained it, the guys went, oh, yeah, sure. Simple. And it's that way if somebody's preaching. Right? It's that way if somebody's trying to share something about the Lord. Just Christians between each other. If it goes on and on and on and you're going, huh, that's deep. A lot of times that's code talk for, <laughs> I don't understand what you mean by that. Well, that's just deep revelation. We can't get it. No, uh-uh, uh-uh. That's not revelation. That's darkness. Because when light comes... You know it when light, when you're reading the Bible yourself or you're praying or you're in a service or listening to a tape or whatever. When light comes, how does it come? You go, oh, well, of course. Right? Sure. Right? Because when you see it in the light, everything's clear. Now look here in John 11. John 11. This is at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They're at the tomb. Lazarus' body is dead. And in the tomb for four days, verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. That'd be like saying, dig them up today. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time he stinks. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, said I not to you that if you would believe, you should see the glory of God. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Does faith have anything to do with seeing the manifest presence of God? With seeing God manifested in our life, yet faith is a big, big factor. How does faith come? It comes by hearing and hearing by the word, which is why the Lord would lead us to do this for all these weeks. Because we're feeding our faith in this area so that we are come to expect more and more. And I can sense it. You know, every week we just keep coming up in our expectation and in our responsiveness to the Lord. We are on the right track. Right? For what? To see more God. More of God. More of His His goodness, His grace, His, His truth. Now, in this series, we've talked about a number of things. We talked about the manifest 
presence of God, the glory cloud, the fire of God manifested back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we've talked about our part of qualifying to respond to God, what we do that allows him to manifest himself more. And getting ready. Faith gets ready. One big area that we've talked about is what we've called sanctifying the Lord in the eyes of the people, which we're people, include all of us. Now that word sometimes sanctify, people don't know what it means. It means to separate, to distinguish, to set apart. Like in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, the washing basin, the lampstand, the incense, the altar, they were sanctified holy to the Lord. What does that mean? You don't use the temple wash basin to wash your cups and pans in. Did you hear me? You only used it for God's things. You didn't burn that incense in your living room. Did you hear me? You only burned it there. What does that mean? You distinguished it. This is God's thing. It's different from the common stuff that people use every day. Well, all that is typical. And the Bible uses the phrase sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts. What does that mean? Distinguishing what is God and what is man. Now, the Lord has led me, I believe, today, I didn't intend to talk on this at all. Had no intention. I didn't plan to talk about what I'm going to talk about any more than I thought I'd come talk about cucumber gardening (laughs) or auto polishing or whatever. You know, I mean, but it came up in my heart. And after looking at it and praying about it for hours, I realized this matters to the Lord. So I'm going to talk about it. There are areas we saw how that Moses and Aaron failed to sanctify the Lord in the eyes of the people. Didn't we? What does that mean? Remember Moses standing out there by that rock. Right? The Lord tells him, speak to it. And the water's going to come out to satisfy the thirst of the people. He stands up. He takes his rod. And he says, here now, you bunch of rebels. Are we going to have to bring water out of this rock for you? Whoa, whoa. We, now this is the big deal. See, some people have read this like, well, he just made a little mistake. He hid it instead of spoke to it. Oh, no, 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 no. This is no little mistake. This we revealed so much. This was a time when God should be glorified. Right? And when this man of God does what God tells him to do, and this water supernaturally, miraculously flows out of this piece of granite enough to satisfy millions of people's thirst and their flocks, everybody's eyes should be where? On God. And by him standing up and saying, are we going to have to get water out of this rock for you? What's he doing? He is trying to mix the glory of God with his glory. Oh, friends, do you see this? I want you to hear this phrase now, mix. 
mixing glory. My glory and his glory. Let me read this to you. We read this before, but let me read it to you again. The Bible said in Isaiah 42, 8, don't have to turn there, but the Lord said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48, 11 says, I will not give my glory unto another. 1 Corinthians 129 says, no flesh should glory in his presence. I mean, from the beginning, you see how that the Lord said, you are not to mix with the people of Canaan. Right? And oh man, you can see it because history has proven out that there was a mixture. And what happened was a mixture of the worship of God with the mixture of idols. And the Lord warned them about this. He said, I am not going to share. You are my glory with graven images. What does that mean? I am not going to allow you to mix up my holy righteous statutes and judgments and the holy worship of my temple with the worship of Baal. And the worship of Aphrodite and and all these things. God is called in the scripture a jealous God. Capital J. Right? What does that mean? You shall have no other gods before me and none with him. We got one God. Right? One God. And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One spirit. One gospel. Can you say amen? Amen. And the problem has always been from the beginning, this mixing, mixing of glory, mixing. That's what Nadab and Abihu did. You remember we talked about them. God moved in a spectacular way and fire fell, consumed up the offer. I mean, it was supernatural, spectacular. All the people saw the fire come right out of the sky. God manifested his glory in fire. And Nadab and Abihu, two of the top preachers of the time, Levi's sons, they come right out on the heels of that, take their little censers and put some fire in them. And they're strutting around out there holding up the fire. Now we're the fire preachers. We have a fire revival. God's moved in fire. Why? Why'd they do that? God didn't tell them to do that. Why did they do that? Are they not trying to mix God's glory and their glory? They're trying to get in on this. Oh, it's serious. They fell dead on the spot. Right there. The fire consumed them. In the New Testament, Herod in the book of Acts got up to give the speech to people. And the people that were there were trying to flatter him. They didn't even like him. But because their country was dependent on his reign, as he was speaking, they said, Ah, it's a God. It's the voice of a God and not a man. And he took it. He stood up there like, yeah. And he was smitten and was eaten of worms and died. Why? Everybody say mixing. 
mixing. Now I'm going to talk some this morning about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. I said, you don't like Santa Claus? I, I didn't say that. But I am going to say some things about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. <laughs> and I believe I'm doing it at the direction of the Lord. I would not have chosen to say anything about it. But if it suits the Lord, it suits me. Right? Over the years, people have asked questions. You get them by email. You know, what about Santa Claus? What do I tell my kids about Santa Claus? And I've never said that much about it. But I'm going to this morning. In talking about Santa Claus, in my mind, there are two distinct Santa Clauses. We'll call one the historical Santa Claus. And the other one we're going to call the spiritual Santa Claus. Or you you might say the magical Santa Claus. Now the first one, the historical. I'm going to read you a compilation of some history. About Santa Claus. And so you'll, if you would just take a few minutes and listen to this. And this is a compilation from several historical perspectives. And I looked at more than one. And most of them come up with some, about the same thing in different words. This one says, Santa Claus hasn't always looked like the jolly old fellow we know today. Like so many other American traditions, he's a product of the great American melting pot, a blend of many different cultures and customs. His earliest ancestors of Santa Claus date back to pre-Christian days when sky-riding gods ruled the earth. The mythological characters of Odin, Thor, and Saturn give us the basis for many of Santa's distinctive characteristics, like, for instance, flying through the sky. But the most influential figure in the shaping of today's generous, loving Santa Claus was a real man, St. Nicholas of Myra, which is now Turkey. A real man was a fourth century bishop. As a champion of children and the needy, he was legendary for his kindness and generosity. Now, are you with me so far? Two Santas, right? One a mystical, spiritual Santa. The other one, an actual man who lived back in the 4th century. Nicholas, who is later called Saint Nicholas. Now, this is the basic story that got around that developed into Santa Claus today. In a well-known story illustrating Saint Nicholas' benevolence, we find two of the basic principles giving to others and helping the less fortunate as well as the tradition of hanging stockings by the fireplace. According to legend, there were three Italian maidens whose families had fallen on hard times. 
And because their father could not afford the dowries necessary for them to marry, he was considering selling one of his daughters to get enough dowry so the other two could be married. When the good Saint Nicholas heard of the family's plight, he went to their home late one night and anonymously tossed three bags of gold down the chimney. Miraculously, a bag fell into each of the sisters' stocking, which were hanging by the fire to dry. And this kind-hearted gift made it possible for all three sisters to marry. A variation of the story is that as each girl was ready to wed, St. Nicholas came in the middle of the night when no one could see him and tossed a bag of gold through an open window into their stocking. And the idea of gifts delivered through the open window may have begun as a way to explain how Santa could get into a home that had no chimney. (laughs) Now, the date of St. Nicholas's death was December the 6th and was commemorated with an annual feast that gradually came to mark the beginning of the medieval Christmas season. On St. Nicholas Eve, I guess which would have been December the 5th, youngsters would set out food for St. Nicholas and straw for his horses and alcohol for his attendant. (laughs) And in the morning, obedient children would awake to find gifts replaced with sweets and toys and the disobedient, their offering would be untouched and there'd be a rod or a bundle of switches. And St. Nicholas Day is still observed in many countries. Now, uh, at the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the feasting and veneration of Catholic saints was banned by Protestants. But people became accustomed to the annual visit and the gift giving, and they didn't want to forget the purpose of the holiday. So they merged St. Nicholas Day with Christmas celebrations. It was mixed. And uh, in Germany, he appeared as Weinnachtsmann, I believe it is, and in France as Pierre Noel, and they left, that was supposedly to leave small gifts in children's shoes. And uh, St. Nicholas was still portrayed as a gift bearer, and two of his most well-known helpers were uh, Servant Rupert and Bell Snickle. And uh, they were, his attendants were fearsome characters that brandished rods and switches. And their duty was to punish the naughty children that couldn't recite their prayers. And they struck fear in the hearts of little children with these individuals. And uh, the servant Rupert was also known as Black Peter. Because he delivered presents down the chimney and became blackened with soot. And St. Nicholas was also called Rough Nicholas because of his rugged appearance and uh, was used to frighten children into obedience. He knows if you've been naughty. But now not all of, now listen to this, this is something that I don't care for. Not all of St. Nicholas' companions were frightening. In fact, the Christ Kindle, which literally means the Christ child was thought to accompany him. 
often portrayed by a fair-haired young girl, is the Christ child, has become Santa's sidekick. Are you with me now? What is this? It's a mixing. The Christ child is a young girl that Santa's sidekick. Now in America, this is recent history. In the New World, many of the Europeans brought their beliefs when they crossed the Atlantic. The Scandinavians introduced gift-giving elves. So that's where the elves came from. The Germans brought Bell Snickle and Christ Kendall, which was Santa Claus and the Christ child, and they decorated trees. So that's where the tree thing came from, the Germans. And the Irish contributed the ancient Gaelic custom of placing lighted candles in the windows. So that came from the Irish. In the 1600s, the Dutch presented Sinterklaas which meant St. Nicholas, and English-speaking children uttered the name so quickly that it sounded like Santa Claus. And after years of mispronunciation, the name became Santa Claus. That's where it came from. In 1808, the American author Washington Irving created a new version of old St. Nick. This one rode over the treetops in a horse-drawn wagon dropping gifts down the chimneys of his favorites. And uh, in satire, uh, Dietrich Knickerbocker's uh, History of New York, Irving described Santa as a jolly Dutchman who smoked a long pipe and wore baggy breeches and a broad-brim hat. And after that, the familiar phrase of laying his finger beside his nose appeared first in Irving's story. The phrase was used again in 1822 by the now classic poem by Dr. Clark Moore, A Visit from St. Nicholas, which is more commonly known as The Night Before Christmas. His verse gave an Arctic flavor. He's the one that put Santa at the North Pole. When he substituted eight tiny reindeer and a sleigh instead of Irving's horse and wagon. So now it's the reindeer and the sleigh. In Moore's description of Santa, uh, he had a broad face and a little round belly that shook and he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. Up to this point, Santa's physical appearance and the color of his suit were open to individual interpretation. But in 1863, a German immigrant gave us the visual and when they were asked to illustrate for a book of children's poems, he drew this picture of a Santa who was dressed in red and, you know, chubby and the big beard. And he gave Santa his home at the North Pole. And then in 1931, Coca-Cola featured the portly grandfatherly Santa with human proportions, a ruddy complexion, a twinkle in his eye in their 1931 billboard advertisements of Santa Claus. That's where Santa Claus came from. So, how many understand two Santas? One is the uh, historical Nicholas, who later was dubbed a saint, Saint Nicholas, who it, we don't know for sure, but it was purported that he 
On certain times at night time ran and threw presents through the window or down the chimney. But then there is this concoction of uh, the flying Santa Claus and his sidekicks that punish the bad and reward the good. Now, um, in talking about Santa Claus, people ask the question and they say, well, you know, I've had people tell me, well, it's just good Christmas fun. It's just in the spirit of Christmas. And, uh, you know, wearing a red suit, I don't see anything wrong with that. Wearing a hat with a fuzzy ball on it, fine. Chubby with a big beard, What's wrong with that? You know, having a big bag with presents in it and giving them away, great. But here's the deal. Little ones, look up in the face of mom and daddy. Did you hear me? And wide-eyed in wonder, two and three-year-olds and say, Mama, daddy, is Santa Claus really real? I mean, does he really fly through the air? Does he really know if I've been naughty or nice? What do you tell him? Hmm? If you look at him and you say, yeah, baby, Santa Claus is real. You might say, well, we're just pretending. Are they pretending? These little ones, are they pretending? They're looking at you. They think mom and daddy knows everything. Right? And you look at them in the eye and you tell them, yeah, Santa Claus is real. They believe it. It's not pretending to them. Is it okay? How can it be anything other than a lie? Now, I know some people don't like it, but listen, just answer the question. How can it be anything other than a lie? Is it really real, Mama? If I put my tooth under the pillow, the tooth fairy will come and leave money? Is it really real? Yeah, you better go up there and get to bed and put your tooth up under there. Well, it's just good fun. You know, I like to see the sparkle in their eye. Are they pretending? They believe you. And you just lied to them. People don't like it that plain, but friend, how else can it be? Well, it's just a little white lie, Brother Keith. What is a white lie? Well, it's just good, clean fun. Listen, friend. Lying is one of the most serious things dealt with in the whole Bible. The Bible said in Proverbs, there are six things that God hates Yea, seven that are an abomination to him, and two out of the seven have to do with lying. He hates a lying tongue, and he hates a false witness. Friend, I'm telling you, never under any circumstances is it okay to tell a lie. Ever. For any reason. Ever. I've had people look at me and go, well, I I love them too much to tell them the truth. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says a lying tongue hates those that are affected by it. It's just the opposite. I've had people say, well, I I just don't think they can take the truth. So the Lord told you it was okay to tell them something else other than the truth. 
Serious business. Did you hear me? I'm not saying, you know, if you want a picture of Santa Claus, that's your business. Tell your children what it is. Tell them about St. Nicholas that went and threw presents through the window. Right? Well, what about, can he really fly? You know, how does he get down the chimney? How does he get around the world in one night? You say, oh, baby, that's just pretend. That's like the three little pigs. Right? That's like Mother Goose. Right? Is it really real? No, baby, it's not real. Because they're going to find out. I said, they're going to find out. (laughs) Now let's talk about the Easter Bunny a little bit. (laughs) Now, don't you find it interesting that we have two times as Christians, we have two times out of the year that's a big deal to us. Right? Christmas, which literally means Christ Mass, the mass for the Christ. Christ means the anointed one. And then we have what people call Easter. I haven't called it Easter for some time now. And maybe when we get through, you'll know why. If you want to still call it Easter afterwards, that's your business. It's fine. I'm not going to fuss with you about it. But listen to the history of Easter. As with almost all Christian holidays, Easter has been secularized and commercialized. And the symbols of Easter are not a modern fabrication. Since its conception as a holy celebration in the second century, Easter has had its non-religious side. In fact, Easter was originally a pagan festival. The ancient Saxons celebrated the return of spring with an uproarious festival commemorating the goddess of offspring and springtime, and that goddess's name was Easter. And when the second century Christian missionaries encountered the tribes of the north with their pagan celebrations, they attempted to convert them to Christianity. They did so, however, in a clandestine manner. It would have been suicide for early Christian converts to celebrate holy days with observances that did not coincide with the celebrations that already existed. So to save lives, the missionaries cleverly decided to spread their religious message slowly through the population by allowing them to continue the pagan feast, but to do it in a Christian manner. What is that? Mix it. Can you see what we're talking about here? They mixed the festival of the goddess Easter with the resurrection of Christ. They mixed them together. As it happened, the pagan festival of Easter occurred at the same time of year as the Christian observance of the resurrection of Christ. So it made sense to alter the festival and make it a celebration for Christian converts. And eventually, the name Esther was changed to its modern spelling, Easter. And I won't go through all of it, but they went through a bunch of things about how they came to the certain day. And as you notice, the date changes all the time on the calendars. And it says the Easter bunny is not a modern invention. The symbol originated with the pagan festival of the goddess Easter. 
worshipped by the Anglo-Saxons, her symbol was the rabbit. And from the earliest times, the egg was the symbol of rebirth in most cultures. They were wrapped with a gold leaf, or if you were a peasant, you colored them brightly by boiling them with leaves or flowers. So the rabbit, the bunny, and the eggs, uh, historically, the best we can tell, their origin was with the pagan festival of the goddess Easter. Now, somebody said, what does that mean that I shouldn't let my children have a bunny or hunt Easter eggs? Well, who made bunnies? God. So why can't they have a bunny if they want to? Right? The goddess Easter didn't make bunnies. What about eggs? Who made eggs? Well, then why can't the kids have some eggs if they want to? Right? But if they want to color them, fine. Let them color them. But if they want to hunt them, fine. But if you say the little ones look at you in wide-eyed wonder and go, Daddy, did the Easter Bunny really hide all these eggs for us? You got two choices. Right? Lie or tell the truth. That's all you got. What do you say? Oh, no, baby. No. No. The Easter Bunny. And so you'll find that around here, we don't call that celebration Easter. We call it Resurrection Sunday. Right? Because I don't see any reason to call it Easter. You'll find the word Easter one time in the Bible. It's in the book of Acts. But to me, it ought not be. I know it's a strong thing to say, but it's a King James thing. Virtually any other translation you see will not have Easter. It says Passover. And if you look up the word, that's literally what it is. I don't know why they put Easter in there. Yeah, I do. Tradition. Tradition is a powerful thing. Let's go to Mark 7 and see what Jesus said about tradition. Mark chapter 7. In Mark 7 and verse 6, Jesus is speaking. Mark 7, 6. He answered and said to them, Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They teach As a doctrine of God, something that's just men's teaching. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. And he said to them, full well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own traditions. What is a tradition? A tradition is a practice. That has come to be valued and observed. There are godly traditions. Paul talked about traditions he had handed down to the church. But there are ungodly traditions of men that actually conflict and oppose the word of God. And, you know, if you've always grown up with something and you've always been around something and you this is your practice, we always do this and we always do it this way, we ought to examine everything we do in life 
Does it have any basis in God? Does it have any basis in the word? What is its basis in? That's why I read you some of that stuff today. Where did it come from? Yeah, it's been passed down generation after generation after generation after generation. But where did it come from? Is it in the Bible? And some of this stuff aggravates me. I mean, the children in the early days were taught to pray to St. Nicholas for what they wanted. And today, sending letters to the North Pole is a variance on it. And here's the deal. If the child is convinced Santa Claus is real, and I wrote the letter to Santa Claus, and the letter went to the North Pole, and Santa Claus brought my present, and he put it, you know, in, under the tree while I was asleep. And they wake up, and there the present is. Who are they thankful to? Santa Claus. Who do they give the glory to? Santa Claus. Where's the Lord in this? And you've got this mixing. Mixing. And in so many of the TV programs and the movies and the things this time of year, what is the emphasis on? It's either Santa Claus or angels. Right? And it's Santa Claus, Santa Claus, Santa Claus, Santa Claus. There might be a token mention of the Christ child. Did you hear me? Well, then, is it okay? Would it be okay to split the glory during Christmas time half to Abraham Lincoln and half to the Lord Jesus? Would it be all right to split the glory? Let's let you have 30% of the glory during Christmas and we'll give 70% to Jesus. Well, then, is it okay to give Santa Claus 80% of the attention and Jesus 20%? Is it okay during resurrection time to give the Easter bunny 50% of the billing? Are you with me now? This is what's going on. This is what's going on. He said, you have rejected the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Is it okay with the Lord to share his glory? With any other idol or vain thing or flesh. We have seen how strongly he feels about this. And I tell you, I was a little surprised last night that the Lord dealt with me so strongly about this. I did not intend to say anything about Santa Claus. But the stronger it got, I began to realize this is not okay. People are giving glory to Santa Claus. They're supposed to be going to Jesus. People are giving attention and glory to the Easter Bunny. They're supposed to be going to Jesus. It's not okay. And you can see it in the world. What the enemy has done and has been successful to do is replace Jesus with Santa Claus. And replace Jesus with the Easter Bunny. And public places and all kinds of places. You can put up all the Santa Clauses and reindeers and sleighs and elves. You want to. But you put up a manger scene. Now, how is that okay? You can put up all the bunnies and all the eggs and all the baskets and stuff you want to. But you put up Jesus on the cross or the empty tomb? Oh, no, no, no. That's religious. Well, what's the day about? (laughs) Are you with me now? It does matter. I said it does matter. 
It matters a lot. Now, would you go to, with me to Colossians, please? I'm thinking about wrapping this up. Glad you're having so much fun. <laughs> Somebody says, well, I like Santa Claus, Brother Keith. Well, hey, I won't argue with you about it. But take it to the Word. Right? And I can tell you this unequivocally. I can tell you this without blinking an eye, without hesitation. There is no way that God gets any glory out of a lie. There is no way that you can justify lying to your child. No way. Ever. About anything. Never. Did you hear me? No. No. No way a lie is okay. In Colossians... You see a recurring theme through this passage of scripture, Colossians, the second chapter. Glory be to God. What the Bible say? Jesus said, you'll know the truth, the truth, truth makes you free. There's too much Santa Claus, not enough Jesus. There's too much Easter bunny and not enough Jesus. Do you understand this now? Yeah. In Colossians, the second chapter, verse 3 talks about in Jesus, in the Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in Him. Verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Everybody say, in Him. You'll see all through this chapter, it's in him, in him, in him, in him. Verse 8, beware, do what? Beware. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Now, a lot of people would argue this point. Well, it's just, it's good for the children to fantasize and to have fun and to believe in magic. And it's good for their creative processes. That's philosophy. Beware of it. Did you hear me? Children can be creative without believing lies. Right? Yeah. Tell them they could invent a flying sleigh if they want to. (laughs) But not in a magical one. He said... Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the what? The tradition of men, after the rudiments or elements of the world, and what? Not after Christ. See, the enemy is always trying to replace God with something in your life. He wants to replace the Holy Ghost with drugs and counseling. Did you hear me? He wants to replay everything in your life. He wants to put some kind of substitute in there. And worldwide, he's been far too successful at replacing the Christ child and the birth at Bethlehem with Santa Claus. The resurrection of Christ with the Easter Bunny. He goes on to say, for verse 9, for what? In him. In him. 
dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. You don't have to have Santa Claus to fulfill you. You don't have to have the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy to fulfill us. We are complete in Him. He's the head of all principality and power. Skip down to verse 18. Verse 18. Let no man. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. Verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Intruding into those things which he's not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not doing what? Not holding to the head. Who's the head? The Christ, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Let us not make too much of angels. Let us not make too much of Santa Claus or St. Nicholas. Right? Who do we make much of? The Christ. The Christ. I mean, it just aggravated me when I read about that the Christ child is Santa's sidekick. And praying to St. Nicholas for what you need. Oh, no. I mean, that's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. No. Nope. Nope. We emphasize the head. We give all the glory, not 70%, not 50%, certainly not 20%, 100%. All the glory to God. All the glory to Jesus. All the glory to the birth of Jesus. All the glory to the resurrection of Jesus. All. All. Not part. All. All the glory. All the glory. All the glory. People think it's cute. It ain't cute. Two and three year olds to be wide eyed and got their new toy out and go, thank you, Santa Claus. That ain't cute. They're supposed to be saying what? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And thank you, mom and daddy. It's not okay. Thank you, Easter Bunny. Thank you, Tooth Fairy. That is not okay. All the glory, all the thanks, they're supposed to be, from the time they're able to understand, there should be being taught, God is your source. Right? Jesus is the reason that we've got everything good that we've got. Jesus is our provider. He's our sustainer. You don't wait, let them believe lies for years, and then try to teach them the truth. That ain't right. Give all the glory to myths and stuff that's based and steeped and originated in idol worship and goddess worship. and all. No, 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 no. All the glory. Come on, somebody say all the glory. All the glory goes to Jesus. All the glory. We're not going to mix. We're not going to mix. We're not going to try to share. We're not going to try to take his glory to ourselves. We're not going to give it to some fabrication or concoction of somebody's minds. No, all the glory. All the glory. Stand up on your feet and say all the glory. glory. Lift up your hands to the Lord. Say "All all the glory. All the glory. All the glory. All the glory.
This ministry has been brought to you today free of charge by the partners of More Life Ministries and Faith Life Church. If you would like to help send this word to others at no charge, you can become a word sender today. For more information, visit our website at morelife.org.